0: Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name's Mark Lathwaite, and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Good Afternoon, boys. I hope you are both well in these very uh, challenging and uncertain times. Uh, good to see you both. Um, I presume you're both at, at home at the moment. And uh, Ian, you're not. You're not doing any work as a university shut down. Uh, we're uh, yeah, I'm working from home at the moment. Um,
1: so all, any teaching is delivered online, and we're looking at how we can do assessment online um, for students this year, um, particularly focused on year three students and how we can graduate them without an exam period. So there's a lot of work around that at the moment. But uh, research-wise, either focusing on projects that we can collect data through telephone uh, interviews, online surveys or, um, yeah, or research that we're already writing up. So that sort of stuff that we can do from home at the moment. Uh, So, yeah, uh, and that and homeschooling the kids.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mike, same for you. How's your, uh, are you working from home and keeping your businesses going and homeschooling and juggling everything?
2: Yep, all of the above. Um, I'm thankful that um, the way I've run both of my sort of the treatment based and coaching based business plus the wider therapist world software business, they both run online platforms anyway. So it's been less of an adjustment for me than some therapists to switch to purely doing online consultations. But we're ticking over with that stuff, whether it's helping my business or me helping other businesses. Homeschooling, uh, I think, as most people started, started off with quite a lot of structure and now involves lots of assault courses in the garden and running them up and down the the, the front lawn to try and just burn some energy. Um, but, yeah, we are homebound. Um, and the wife still, so the dental, dental world is doing half days, like emergencies only. Mm-hmm. So we're just dovetailing nicely between one of us works in the morning, one works in the afternoon. And then we seem to have tons of time, tons of time at night. Um I, um if there's a positive for me to take, I did in Jan this year, I signed a book deal to write a book about some sports injuries. And they've, there's very little been done between Jan and March. It's supposed to be, due for publication in September. So I finally got a chance to lay out all the research papers and just spend some time trying to plot my way through that. So um, so if I'm not running around with the kids or trying to see people on the computer, then it is just going to write a book slowly.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it is worth saying to all the parents out there who are, um, you know, attempting to homeschool the kids, don't worry about it. No one else can manage it either, you know. <laughs> okay. It's the same everywhere. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So, Mike, with your um, what's your current um so what your clients and the people you're coaching, um, you know, the last couple of weeks, where do you stand them with the whole um the, you know the whole coronavirus things? What kind of things are you seeing, what you're hearing back from from athletes?
2: So I think up until this week, there was just that whole meltdown. People just didn't really get what was going on, everyone was struggling to find some sort of balance and equilibrium. The dust seems to settle. So everyone's been a bit of everything for two weeks. Whereas I think this week I've certainly seen the dust settling. People are starting to find some sort of routine or then try to find a routine for both their therapy and their treatment and their training. So, um, so it seems to be the conversations of this week are far less erratic and um, sort of um, muddled as I've had with people in the last couple of weeks people are ready to go okay what can I do how can I do it what should I be doing and what have I got access to so this week's been a lot easier to have conversations but as, as I'm sure you guys will have found the same it's been a little bit of everything there's people with a real common sense down-to-earth approach to it and then there's those that have gone completely extreme one way and those have gone completely extreme the other way from doing more than they normally would or less to almost complete rest. I've seen lots of people who are really struggling to do anything right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ian, what about you? From of a of psychology perspective, I hear people having their, their events taken away from them and uh, probably lose a bit of motivation. What do you? What's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, as many listeners will probably be aware that we, we've talked about on a number of different topics um, of our different episodes. Uncertainty and lack of control are not good things psychologically for people. Um, It tends to bring about a lot of anxiety and stress for people um, when they're uncertain about things. And um, and it's not good for motivation as well, I think, especially in this regard, in terms of the uncertainty we've got here, because um, we hear the term unprecedented a lot at the moment. But I think in terms of training, it's really difficult for people because very few people have ever been in the situation where... it's not just that you haven't got a race on the horizon i think we've all been in that situation where yeah you may be in the off season and you you just sort of on getting back into your training but we're in a position now where you you can't actually identify a race or know which is going to be your next race so it's bringing in a, a a new level of uncertainty for a lot of people i think and i think motivation wise people are really struggling with that and with that's as Mike said, though, you're seeing people who are, are not really training at all because of that. And I think, you know, it's really important that, you do, the last thing most endurance athletes want to come out of this um, with these really low levels of fitness uh, and not being able to sort of do what uh, gives them the most pleasure or a lot of pleasure um, and race when the opportunity comes. So I think for me, the focus has been on well, a couple of things that I'm focusing on. One is sort of doing sufficient training so that I'm maintaining most areas of my normal fitness, but not at a sort of racing level. Um, so, you know, for, for running maybe around 40 miles a week with a couple of sessions that have got some quality in there uh, and then a slightly longer one uh, within the week, but also to work on aspects of my fitness that I, I normally wouldn't do. Um, because there's a lot, of t- a lot of times that I wouldn't work on, say, upper body strength or aspects of strength that I think might impact negatively, especially at this time of the year, on my endurance fitness and I'd be doing more specific work. Um, so I've started to introduce other aspects of fitness and playing around with different, trying different training methods and trying to learn in this period. So, you know, if I do, so we often stick to what's familiar with us because we know if I do A, B, C, I get in good, the sort of shape I want to be in to race. This is one of those few opportunities where there aren't any races, we can try different things and we can test them out and we can see how that, what impact that has. So all those things that in the off season you think, well, maybe I should introduce that and try that. And then when the season comes along, it's like, well, actually, that's a bit of a risk if I do that. I'll fall back to what I normally do. Now now's the time to sort of try some of those things and develop areas of fitness or try and address that niggling injury that you maybe just carry normally uh, mm. and really sort of iron all those things out and bring some positives out of, you know, what is on the whole a very negative situation. And I think if you do that, bringing in something different means that you're not, expecting the same levels of fitness and the same performances you normally would so it sort of takes a bit of the pressure off in that regard you're doing enough to sort of maintain levels of fitness um so that when the opportunity to race comes you may be only five or six weeks from getting back to a decent level of fitness but there's also some positives and some learning to come out of the whole um situation to put a bit more of a positive slant on it so yeah there's some of the things i'm focusing on to try and offset some of that uncertainty that comes in situations like this
0: yeah you know and we've talked in here a lot of times about a b and c goals haven't we and the people that we're coaching you know we've had this conversation with them already and just say look your a goal is that you're a if you carry on training for the event evented have entered in the, in summer on the off chance that it's going to go ahead which as we know the chances of events going ahead in summer are probably quite slim but that's your a goal if that doesn't go ahead you look for something later on in the year potentially which is your b goal and if that doesn't go ahead your c goal is purely that you're just going to maintain a level of structured fitness and find new ideas and things to um, to work on and and it, it's going to be a b or c and whatever it is it it is you know but like you know if you've only got an a goal then once that a goal is removed when the organizer says it's not taking place anymore then that's probably when people's heads start to fall a little bit isn't it
1: yeah and i think when you're doing that kind of training for a very specific um, A race, some of the sessions that you're doing really, if you're gonna do them right, require a really high level of commitment. Mm -hmm. And to get that level of commitment and that level of effort in those sessions to get the benefit that you need to get that level of fitness, you you probably need to know that that event, or be confident that event's happening. Um, So it can be really difficult to try and maintain that sort of program when there's that degree of uncertainty in the background, when the, when you're doing that fifth or sixth rep where normally you're right on the limit, um, to sort of bring those efforts out when there might be no real purpose to it is very challenging, very difficult, um, and perhaps unrealistic for a lot of people, I think.
0: Yeah. and I mean, this brings me on nicely as well to, um, we're talking about if you're training for a, a big event, of course, there is the issue that um, some of those sessions might need to be not just very intense but also very long so it brings on the the time of whether we actually can train for those events and you know this one of the things we wanted to talk about on the podcast is um you know i I don't know if you guys are are exercising outdoors at the moment or whether you're you're exercising indoors but what tends to happen in a a crisis like this is that people on facebook and and social media get get quite judgmental and it seems there are people that have fallen into the camp of you shouldn't be exercising at all outdoors. You should stay at home. And then there's a group of people who are saying, "Well, no, the government have said that we can exercise outdoors, so we are going to exercise outdoors and be reasonable about it." And then there's Joe Skipper. Uh, <laughs> there's people who are probably using this because they see it as I'm on holiday and the weather's been really nice the last few weeks. I can get out here for six, seven hours a day. You know, and 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 there is that that side to it as well. And you know, we saw that people are aware Joe Skipper, who's a pro triathlete, and I'm not by any means having a go at Joe on this, but just to kind of relay the story that he um, he went out on a 200-mile bike ride and posted it on Strava and then shared it all over Twitter to say his one exercise session, he'd made the most of it. I think he'd been on his bike nine to ten hours, and, of course, it hit the national news, and people were absolutely lambasting him for being so ridiculous and being out all day. And um, just what your views on it are, really, you know, so this, just the – the pressures that some people are trying to put on others and and you know where, where you fall on that and um, so i'll come to you first mike so i think common sense needs to prevail here the guidelines are
2: you, you should be exercising the guidelines are outside is fine for now but keep the social distancing be responsible personally i am i'm going out a couple of times a week um I think the healthcare professional in me is keen that it's as much for mental well-being, that people should be getting some fresh air, changing the scenery. It is, speaking personally, it's a really fundamental change for me to be stuck in the house. I spend very little time at home normally, and as much as it's okay, and I'm enjoying being around the kids, I need to get out, I need to change the scene. Some of the times I've gone out and and taken the kids with me for a little, we were lucky we got a little woods near us, so... The fields and the woods are easy to access and I've taken the kids with me for a little run. But the wife, we all go for walks when we can. So I don't have a problem with people exercising outside. However, there seems to be three approaches. People being very common sense about stuff, people being extreme one way or extreme the other way. And I have certainly seen bunches of bike riders going out who clearly aren't all from the same household. I've seen people running through the town centre when... Why do you need to run to the town centre when there's multiple routes that you can avoid those sort of positions? And likewise, I've seen and spoken to people who are, no, I'm not leaving the house. And, and because I don't have X, Y or Z equipment at home, then that means I can't do anything. Well, of course you can. It might be a case of picking the time of day that you run or the route that you run. You know, I've made it. I've certainly noticed when I've been out, I'm running for about 45 minutes when I'm out. No. No watch, no time, just for fun, just enjoying it, just in the fresh air. I see people walk in, uh, look at you like you've got two heads when you're coming towards them. And I've made an extra point of being jovial and saying to them and, and just giving them a wide berth. I've started running a little bit like you would on the bike, runner behind, passing you on the right, just to give those people who may get a little bit alarmed there's a, there's a quite large bloke coming heavy sweating behind you and he's giving you enough notice that you're you're fine but i think until i fear that the time will come we're not allowed to exercise outside so i think those who are it's a personal decision but those who are not enjoying it now we've had some fantastic weather down here right now for the last couple of weeks thank god and it's been great to get out and if the time comes when i can't get out i'll certainly feel better that i've listened to the guidelines and adhered to them
3: Made
2: the most of being out. Mm. Uh, Ian?
1: Yeah, I'm in a similar uh, position, really. I mean, as I say, I'm, so I, I'm in out most days. I'm running between 45 minutes and an hour. Um, I go a little bit longer on a Sunday, do a 12 mile which is a little bit over the, the hour, more towards the hour and a half, maybe stretching it a little bit, but I think that's just enough to sort of maintain those. That element of my fitness, so that it's it's staying there, and then every other day it's between forty-five minutes an hour, and then on top of that I'm doing stuff um, in the garage, which is mainly strength-based. But in terms of uh, what I think you know, people should be doing, I think there's a big, you know, I don't think we can base this, you know, on personal decisions and and how it impacts us individually. We've got to look at this uh, as a nation. And I very much agree that this is, uh, you know, we've heard quite a lot about this. We've all been in this together. And I think we are. And there's a lot of people that are really putting themselves at risk. Um, You know, I'm thinking about people working in the NHS, people who still work in supermarkets and so on, to to allow us to live what is still, you know, fairly comfortable uh, lives for a lot of people. Uh, And it's a real benefit that I can still get out running. But... A lot of what is being done in the background in terms of decision-making around government and whether they then bring in more stringent measures and so on is all predicated based on what the current strategy is and what the effects of that are. Um, So they're basing, they're looking at the data that's coming out in terms of new infections, um, hospital admissions, uh, deaths and so on. So all the data that are coming out and uh, the more fine-grained data that the... uh, that Public Health England and Public Health Wales and Health Protection Scotland will be looking at um, is all based on what the current strategy is and if they start to see worrying signs or they think people are adhering to it then they'll obviously bring in more stringent measures so I think you know uh, just from a citizen perspective it's important that if we we do what we're being asked to do because then the government can see whether that's working and that requires everyone to be doing that on a national level so i don't think we can look at this at, at me personally me just going out and doing that bit extra um is yeah, that's not going to affect anything no not for you individually might not and me going out for that group ride or you know that, those individual little things maybe don't count much but on a national level if hundreds and thousands of people are doing it then it does make uh, big differences so yeah, no, I, I think stick to the guidelines and uh, and if that is not working and it's required for us to to not be able to run outside, then you know, that that'll be a real hit for me. But I'll accept that and I'll do it if that's what's that's what's necessary, um, given what's happening on a national scale and people are in much worse situations than me. Um so yeah, no, I think you know there's no need to be more extreme than what the guidelines are saying, but then again we don't need to be Um, taking things much beyond what um, we're permitted to do because I think you can maintain a good level of fitness if we stick within those guidelines and hopefully it will then be necessary for, for things to get more strict.
0: Yeah I do I mean I do find it frustrating we you know we closed our businesses down before we were told to close our businesses down and we've isolated and haven't seen parents haven't seen any friends haven't ran with anybody you know we've really done absolutely everything And I go out for 45 minutes outside for 45 minutes to an hour every day running. And I'm doing everything possibly I can. But I still, when I look at social media, I'm almost sometimes afraid almost to post it that I've been out for a run for an hour. Because I think, you know, there'll be some people who want to jump on it and say, you should be doing everything possible and you should be staying indoors. Um, And a a couple of things I wanted to bring up is just the, the terminology that people use. So I think there is a big difference almost between people saying, I've been out for an hour's exercise on my bike, where if someone says I've been out for an hour training and I did a block of intervals or whatever it may be, how those things are seen as completely different. So the word exercise, and if you went for a 45-minute a, a run and took your children, that would be seen completely different to I went out and did a block of mile repeats. But it's just running for 45 minutes to an hour. It's all the same. But do, do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't what your opinion on that? that
2: is, Mike. Yeah, well, again, so so another way of interpreting that would be someone saying I went out and ran eight miles because to a lot of people that's an hour's run. Mm. To some people that'd be a three-hour run and the, the correlation and understanding that I, it's not the finite distance, it's just relative to that person. So um, completely see what you're saying about um, the fear of letting people know. Then you have to look in, is it the fact that someone interprets whether they understand the technical terms or not someone being detailed in a training session is the true issue I don't think you're taking coronavirus seriously enough because you're still so focused on your training rather than just the, the back seat for a second and go in okay look who they are look where their lifestyles are and you know, unfortunately, we are in a world people can make any comments on anyone's posts and social media. So you can't really put context into a lot of those things. Um, non, non um, endurance based, but we've got a local Facebook group here in my town. And just again, some of the polarisation and attitudes between people on everyday factors about walking around town, going shopping, there's just the same sort of vitriol and lack of understanding between the extremes um, because there's no context there. So, so I don't have, you know, we can, we can, and most of our listeners will be able to see someone write a technical session down and understand it in the context it is. But, um, but again, I just, you know, I said it before. Things like when we chatted about Strava and tech, uh, it baffles me unless you're a professional with sponsorship commitments. Or a coach with an athletic team that you're trying to give education to. I just don't understand why anyone ever needs to tell anyone online what they've done. Train yeah. for you, train yeah. for what you enjoy doing. So it's your fitness and your performance you, you should be worried about. And, you know, proud to say I uh, do not have a Strava account.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, w- and I, w- I would say um, there's a couple of things I want to say here. So, first of all, I have noticed that when people are going out running now, if they do post it on social media, um, what they'll post is been out for my hours exercise so it's not a training session anymore it's hours exercise just good to get outdoor didn't time it got outdoors in the fresh air and they're almost because they're aware of social social opinion at the moment they're wording it as it's you know good for my health and it's my hours exercise when rather than saying yeah went out because i wanted to do one mile reps or something because people probably have a more positive view of someone exercising outdoors and going blowing off a bit of steam and getting out compared to doing a structured training session. Um, and I think that's where perhaps Joe Skipper completely misread it, that he's gone out for a, this long ride and thinks it's okay to post it on social media. And, you know, and, and just so much against public opinion. It's So the polar opposite at the moment, there was never anything going to happen apart from getting attacked. And um, yeah, just, you know just stop posting it on social media if it bothers you if you're worried about it be really sensible and don't post it on social media because then you're not at any risk of people coming back in and attacking you but one thing i want to ask you ian just taking this a step further even as we are doing this podcast i am very conscious of we are talking about training and a b and c goals and people's races and i think there would there maybe is a growing view that people would listen to this and go Why are you guys even talking about this? Do you not know there's something much more serious going on in the world? Why are you even talking about races, whether your race will or will go ahead? And your B race or your C race or maintaining your fitness or working on the other weaknesses that you didn't have time to do. There's a much more serious thing going on in the world. And I, I, I see a bit of that as well on social media. And it's almost shaming people who are still trying to maintain some structure or training or thinking about races ahead because you shouldn't be thinking about those things because there's something far more serious going on in the world. And for, for me, and again, you always get scared to post stuff on social media in case you get, you know, lambasted for it. But for me, I'm thinking I, I'm not under any illusion about how serious this is and how serious it is for my, my business, you know, and the people I employ. And, and how many people, my parents who are both in the high risk category, I am under no illusion how serious this is and how much stress the NHS are under and all of this stuff. But exercise is part of my life, and it's something I've always done and will always continue to do. And I don't think people should feel guilty about asking questions about future events or training. And um, you know, so I, I don't think it's fair to to uh, to to have a go at people if they are asking those questions because that doesn't mean they are not concerned about the things that are going on. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, Ian? No, I think I mean.
1: It is an incredibly serious situation uh, on a global level, um, and one that will have repercussions for years to come, I'm sure, in, uh, in every area of people's lives. But you know, as as you both know, we we recorded a podcast two or three weeks ago, yeah. and the situation and that never went to air because the situation is so fast changing that if you have a discussion and it doesn't get broadcast within a day or two. It's out of date. And that's how quickly this whole situation has moved. I mean, just to think how far things have moved. I, I posted something on, on Twitter about a week ago. I think Sophie Rayworth put a tweet out when it was first announced that the um, Excel Centre was going to be used as a hospital. Um, now it's the biggest hospital in the world. And it was less than two weeks since people were still talking about whether the London Marathon was going to happen. And all of a sudden, the very place that would have been the place for the expo for the London Marathon was now getting turned into a hospital. And that's how fast this whole situation is moving. So there's this whole area of uncertainty and no one really knows what's coming next in terms of next week or what the implications of this whole situation will be. And I think, you know, 99 percent of endurance athletes will recognize how serious that is and recognize that, you know, this is a very serious situation. But if exercise is something that's a very strong element of your personality, but also a really important area of your life, and it's one area of your life that you can maybe have some control over, then and it's something that's, you know, there's a whole host of research that shows the positive psychological benefits that come from exercise. If this is a very important way in which people, you know, maybe cope with this this situation, then I don't think we should really be criticising people for doing that or for still trying to – people are asking questions about races because they want some certainty or to try and put some structure into what they're doing um, to give them a little bit of something definite or positive to focus on within their lives. So I don't think we should be trying to take that away from people and this natural assumption that if you're doing that, you're not taking the whole coronavirus situation seriously because you know, people very much are, I think as we've all talked about, you know, we're all doing things that are within the guidelines, but we're all still trying to keep elements of our training and our exercise as sort of positive aspects of our lives in there. So uh, I think we you know, we should be trying to support people. I mean, alongside the psychological benefits, there's the physical benefits as well and the physiological benefits. I mean, that if we do uh, get uh, you know, endurance athletes get the virus. is much less chance that they'll end up in hospital because they've got much better fitness, stronger immune systems. So, and that is what that's what the government advice on getting out for an hour's exercise every day is predicated on is that they know that people are going to be fitter and stronger, and they don't want another issue with public health stemming from this whole situation because people are just you know stuck at home. Uh, and uh, unable, you know, to go out and exercise. So as long as it's possible within the containment of the virus for people to um, go out and exercise, I think that's why the government will be actively recommending it. They're not saying, you know, we'll allow you to go out for an hour a day, they're actually actively encouraging people to do it because they recognise the benefits of that. So, yeah, uh, no, I think it's, in some ways, you could even argue that it's, responsible to be criticizing people to go out and exercise because there can be positive benefit for this global crisis uh, from people doing that as long as there are you know knock on negative effects for the spreading of the virus and that's why you've got to do it responsibly and in the way that the government are are recommending Uh, and if this evidence comes out that shows that that can't be done safely then i'm sure the, the government advice will change
0: yeah mike have you anything else to add in there well, first off, I'm glad you
2: threw that fastball at him and not me. Um, <laughs> glad he got that one first. Chuck the political time bomb at him first. Um, no, I agree completely with what Ian said. I think, um, I think it's imperative for people to understand that you can be completely in the here and now, but still be thinking other things. You know, I think most of us, it is, it is the strangest times we've ever lived in and to have some positivity to think about what's going to come because as much as we don't know what the immediate future is going to be, we're well aware that the long-term future will be that we'll get back to normal. A lot of people's lives will be affected dramatically from it and many will be lost, unfortunately. But life will return to normal and we have to think positively about that. I think um, certainly the endurance athlete has an identity and a coping mechanism via endurance sports and training. So there's that factor that we have to. That's why some people are training because it's who they are. You know, I have many colleagues who are in or have returned to the NHS and are now at the front line. And many of these, the first thing they do when they get off shift is go training. They go for a run. They do some exercise to decompress from the stress stress and pressures of their day. So we've know it's well established as Ian alluded to, all the benefits mentally and and, um, physiologically of of exercise. So they shouldn't be frowned on. Um, So, and again, there's, there's another angle to look at it, that one of the things the NHS will need to do when this is done and dusted is recover themselves. And if we suddenly have three to six months of inactive people or less active people becoming more sedentary, more unfit, there's a knock-on effect that's going to be not helping the NHS recover afterwards, where, when the world's trying to get back to normal, they suddenly have a whole other host of of health conditions to deal with from people not being fit and active. And and as Ian said, it's one of the the few times they advocate you leave the house and they don't do that lightly. So, so people should exercise. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm, Tricky one. The, um, uh, the other thing I was going to say as well is, of course, I'm, I'm in this position of having an event which is uh, coming up. Well, potentially supposed to be at the end of July. You know, as an event organizer, and that's one of the things I do. It's uh, that in itself is a is a whole different ball game as well. We've uh, so we've postponed a lot of events now through to through to kind of June, July. But um, organizing the uh, Lakeland Fifty and Lakeland Hundred, which is uh, Supposedly on the last weekend of July, and and I also think that event organisers it's very very tricky at this point to um, you know to know what what the future is and so we're getting a lot of requests from runners and triathletes saying when will the events be back on and you know when will this happen and would you postpone it to a certain date and of course we had a conversation before we went live here we were talking about you know London Marathon being postponed to September October. And we don't really know, you don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, none of us really know what's going to happen. I presume it's just an ongoing thing where they're assessing and changing and, and, you know, the predictions are constantly changing week on week, aren't they, based on the previous week's data. So we don't even know if any events will take place, take place for the, you know, for all of this year. Um, when, when was London postponed to, Ian? It's been postponed to
1: October the 4th, I think.
0: Yeah. And I guess we, none of us have any guarantees. We're, we're hearing like the plans of whether we'll kind of suppress, um, you know, su- suppress coronavirus and then allow people a little bit more freedom and then suppress it again. And, you know, I mean, you probably know more about this than, than I do, just certainly. you know, what, what's, what's, what have you been reading recently? Well, certainly some of,
1: the, some of the early modelling data that came out that changed the government, seemed to have changed the, the government's approach they modelled that sort of phase reintroduction of bringing people back out into more normal operations in society and then suppressing it again and then so basically there'd be two points in which they'd be looking at so they'd be looking at when they reach a certain maximum uh, hospital uh, admissions and uh, new infections that's when they would bring people back into sort of social distancing measures and the isolation and then when they get down to a certain level again, then you go back to more normal uh, operations. So, uh, and that seems to be what was guiding a lot of strategy at the time. And then more recent things, in terms of when you're listening to the uh, public health officials within the UK speaking at the press conferences, they do seem to be talking about this sort of gradual reintroduction. So that could be gradual releasing of certain measures over time. Or it could be this more phased approach. And I, 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 my feeling is that they might go for that more phased because it's hard to know what the, what you would gradually release. You know, did, would you just open the schools again? But obviously that depends on whether it's school time or not. If you allow people to Do you allow everyone to go back to work, or do you allow certain businesses back in? So I think it might be, you know, once they do feel as have suppressed things to a, set, a certain level, then. Um, then they might allow society to function more normally until they hit sort of thresholds again, and then we'll go back into these measures. Now that, you know, once people know what they're meant to do, you don't want too many different situations, too many different scenarios, do you? Because as we've seen, when this current situation was brought in, there's always confusion about what people are allowed to do and aren't allowed to do. So for me, it's much clearer that you've either got pretty much normal operations or you've got the situation we're in now and you could phase that and it, a lot of it depends on um, what some of the current research around the possibility of um, herd immunity, whether that's going to be effective, um, whether they start developing antivirals, um, whether this likelihood of a vaccine. will all determine what strategy is used and if it's not looking like other measures might be effective then maybe they will and herd immunity might be possible then they might start moving back towards that but obviously doing it in a very phased uh manner so that it gradually allowing the virus to spread through the the population but obviously protecting the nhs at the same time so it, it might be where you have very focused blocks of schools being open or universities being open but you can do that for for the universities it's problematic because you've got international students and international travel so they would probably still need to be distance learning but maybe uk students could could return for a, a very focused block of face-to-face teaching and then with some sort of blended learning on distance learning and similarly workforce could go back for focused periods of time into the office um, and, and then go back to the situation we're in now um, and, and what will happen around uh, massive mass participation events it's hard to say but it probably would be simpler for them to just keep a lid on those because you've got the whole situation of people saying well why are you allowing this event on but not that one mm. um so it's very difficult to do that in a phased manner in the un- unlike you know allowing people back into work and so on you can do that for say a block of four weeks and then close it down because i think the other thing that we've not discussed in terms of um racing is it's not just knowing that the london marathon is on on october the 4th it's whether people can train for the london marathon for the 12 16 weeks in the lead up that means people are got to go out for more than
0: an hour's run starting in sort of july time well, uh, which appears unlikely well yeah well i'm organizing a hundred mile running race at the end of july so that is the problem yeah. but, you know you are yeah. that that you know we we're going to have to make a decision in, 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 very soon because people have to or have to change the event or, you know, there's got to be something because it just isn't, it's a fact that people have to train for it. I'm also acutely aware of, you know, what's socially acceptable that we're saying, look, you know, you've got this guy going out and doing a 200 mile bike ride when everybody else is limiting themselves to an hour, an hour and a half of outdoor exercise. As an organiser, you are forcing people to have to go out for five, six, seven hours if they want to adequately prepare. So we become part of the problem. So kind of a all these kind of things. But I'm also aware of this mass of people saying, do not cancel it. It's the one thing that's keeping us going. You know, so it's it's just, you you, you know, w- w- whichever angle you look at it, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, unfortunately. Now,
1: I mean, because the other thing is um, the specificity of the training. So even if I could go out for longer than an hour at the moment training for the 100, say, um, this time of year, so well, once London is out of the way, I would be spending most weekends either doing a long session or it's on the M6 heading up to the lakes or heading round to Shropshire to get some decent hills in, you know, because I'm in the middle of Birmingham. I'm not going to be able to train for a reasonably hilly 100-miler train effectively in Birmingham unless I'm running up and down staircases somewhere, um, which in itself is challenging when you can't get access to buildings. So, (laughs) you know, you can't do the specific training in terms of the, the hills because it requires the unnecessary travel that is not allowed at the moment as well. It's
4: yeah.
1: It's problematic for a lot of people. Obviously some people live close to the hills than, than I do. So yeah, no, it's 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 very difficult. But at the same time, as a competitor, if there's any chance that the hundred could be on, I'd be prepared to give it a go. <laughs> you know, even on half training or imperfect yeah. training. It'd just be a a different focus and a different journey this time around yeah. Um, yeah. in that, that situation.
2: Well, I, I I, think the psychology, when this sort of horse cloud lifts over us, I think people will be so glad to be able to get out and to be able to commute and mix and do different things. I think people, certainly the physio in me is thinking, oh, God knows what's going to start popping up on the horizon. People will be doing all sorts of stuff underprepared. And you can't blame them because they just want to be out. They just want to be exercising. They just want to be doing stuff. So you'll probably have a lot of people, you know, if you put an Ironman on six weeks out, people will probably turn up and have a bash at it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, as, as, and as long as they are happy to adjust their goals for that, then that's probably, you know, there's worse things some people could be doing. But um, I know go, one thing I'd read about the um, one of the possible dynamics is that they will lift the ban geographically based on measures that certain areas and NHS regions are coping with. So that would add an even bigger spanner in the works if you were to if you were to be able to say, Lakeland is on, but anyone based in the northeast, you can't leave the house yet. You can't really train, you're still in lockdown. But everyone in the southwest, you guys can crack on, do what you want. Then you've got
0: that whole yeah. riddle I mean, if they just said Northerners can do it, I'd be all right with that. (laughs) Yeah, and it is, yeah, but that's, and of course the whole thing, you know, I mean, we're discussing this, and the bottom line is that Coniston Parish Council or the Lake District Council might just say, no, no, you're not bringing 2,000 people to Coniston. It's as simple as that. And rightly so, why, you know, why wouldn't they? You know, if I was in their shoes, you know, why would people in Coniston go, yeah, come on, people from all over the country come. So, it, yeah, it's it's a very, very, uh, very, very tricky situation, unfortunately. And um, I'm hoping there's going to be some light at the end of the tunnel, but who knows? But just one thing to finish on as well. We, I know we had a bit of a chat about this before we did the podcast. Is I'm, whilst I'm going out exercising, and I think a lot of people, who, if you do go out for a run, I'm quite fortunate because we're quite rural, that I can go straight out the door and sometimes not see a single person or just bump into one or two people when I'm out uh, running and you kind of think because you're alone and you're, and you're not running with friends and you're not bumping into many people that you are safe. But I'm just very conscious of this. I'm hearing these things about the, it, the, the virus can stay on metal for, I don't know if it's three hours or three days. I'm confused, to be honest. But, but every time I get to a style or I put my hand on a metal latch that opens the style, I'm now thinking it's, you know, whilst I might be out here on my own, someone could have ran down here an hour earlier and open that metal gate and put their hand on it. And now I'm opening the metal gate. I'll put my hand on the style and it's on my hands. So even when I go out for a run, if I don't see anybody, I'm conscious during that run to never put my hands anywhere near my face. And i wash my hands as soon as I get back to the house. So, you know, what, what are your, your, your guys, uh, your guys thoughts on that? I'm, I'm exactly the same.
2: Uh, I've got lots of metal gates and, and, um, sort of uh, national trust trails near me, and sort of gates and things. And I'm exactly the same. The same thoughts cross my mind. And then I'm exactly the same. If if I can avoid touching my 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 face, anything I will. If I have to, I'll use my sleeve or something. Um, and then as soon as I'm in, w- what's the worst case? I'm just being a little bit overcautious and protective. But the best case is I'm taking very necessary measures to to protect myself and and those around me and stuff. So I don't think that's a bad thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean for me that would be a good problem to have if I could be opening gates and uh, out in National Trust uh, land because most of my runs are you know, in and around the centre of Birmingham so I can get on the canal um, it's probably the nearest I get to running out in the country or there's, uh, some cycle trails along the River Valley but I can go out and run 12 miles without touching anything but I still when I come in the first thing I do is wash my hands really well um, just based on the government advice, and just uh, just in case. But yeah, it's not so so much of an issue for me. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of the there's a lot of discussion about how long the virus can live on certain surfaces. I think there's a, still a lot of uncertainty around that, so it's just better to be safe because you know there are some surfaces that the virus can live on for a day or two. But there's also a suggestion that sunlight can kill the virus. So uh, and how porous these surfaces. So although it might live on a surface, how porous the surface is determines how easily it is tr- transferred to you. So there's a lot of uncertainty around um, around that. So it's just better to be safe, I think, in that in in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know what you guys are doing sounds sensible to me, and I, I'd like to have that problem because if I'm opening gates, I'm probably in somewhere <laughs> a little bit more picturesque than where, where I'm running most of the time at the
2: moment. But. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, better to be safe. <laughs> come and isolate. Well, you can't come and isolate with me because it'll be a non-essential trip. But, uh, a bit <laughs> yeah, a bit late. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably just uh, move on to our interview for the day then. And um, I think with all the coronavirus chat, whilst it is uh, interesting, it's also it's nice to have a change and go to something new. So I think we should perhaps talk about the vapor flies which uh, were nicely lead us into our to our next interview
1: now, i think um interesting i've seen a few tweets on social media uh, relating to the because obviously before this the whole coronavirus situation died that was there was a real buzz on social media about uh the vapor flies and uh, and so on and uh, and, and the performance and enhancing effects and so on and um I've seen a few tweets recently where people have just said, uh, "How like uh, oh, I'd go back to life where we just tweeted about uh, vapor flies and mm-hmm. how much they affected and, and cheating shoes." So I, I think some people it might be seen as a bit of light relief to, to, to go back to those days when uh, when that was the focus of people's social media uh, rather than the current
2: focus. Yeah. So maybe it's timely. One of my one of my tweets of the week was: "Remember the vapor pie?" Had the pie on it that you chatted about before, Mark. This this week, someone's put uh, like a Vaporfly slipper because we're all stuck indoors. It's effectively a a tweed slipper with with a Vaporfly base on it. And that made me chuckle. Um, all, All I would quickly do before we move on is reiterate something Ian touched on right at the start. For you athletes out there now your races, your seasons, everything's been put on hold. It is the opportunity like you've never had before to address those aches, niggles and pains that you've ignored or made an excuse not to address for so many years. So really maximise what you can do in this time and, and try and get yourselves fighting really fit, ready for when we do come back.
0: Super. Okay. On that note, let's dial in our special guest for today. OK, so we're going to go to our uh, our special guest for today's podcast, which is uh, Phil Hurst, who's a senior lecturer in sports psychology at Canterbury Christchurch. And in the recent podcasts, we've been talking a lot about Vaporfly. And we've seen a few tweets from Phil, who's a, a specialist uh, in research in placebo effect. And he's got some interesting thoughts on on the uh, Vaporfly. So first of all, Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. Uh, Phil, could you okay. just, first of all, just um, talk a little bit about your background and uh, the research that you've done, and then maybe just explain a little bit about the things you've been tweeting with relating to the vapour fly <laughs> and the placebo effect, because it's a fascinating topic.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, so I've been researching the placebo effect ever since my undergraduate dissertation, and it sort of led on to a PhD where I looked into sort of the, the effects of supplements on repeat sprint performance with a real large sample size. And it was just trying to figure out, um, what potentially, what, what sort of magnitude the placebo effect could have on sports performance. And then in 2018, uh, when I was in Birmingham and um, uh, sort of passing the corridors with Ian now and again, um, I started working on a systematic review of the placebo effect and wanted to pull together all of the studies in the area on, the influence the placebo effect could have on nutritional ergogenic aids such as caffeine sodium bicarbonate things like anabolic steroids and EPO and then also mechanical ergogenic aids like ice baths and um sort of uh, electro electrical magnets type things and that sort of falls under Nike Vaporfly shoes as well although there there weren't any studies to go off on Nike Vaporfly shoes and you know like you guys you constantly see on Twitter feed, you constantly see in the media that Night Butterflies improved performance. They had this huge effect. They've broken world records. They've done all of this. And I kind of, I, I was reading it and I'm like, oh, okay, this is this is interesting. Um, But for me, I, I like to be a bit more rigorous in terms of how we evaluate the evidence. And I had a little bit of a look to see if there's been anything out there to see has anyone actually studied the effect of those Nike bit flies under real controlled conditions? And what I mean by that is, is it actually being compared against a placebo in a in a real sort of randomized controlled trial? Has it been done without the funding of Nike? Because I'm sure he can buy some results quite easily. And on on sort of a, on a, a meaningful measure such as a ten kilometer time trial or marathon performance what it may be and there was absolutely nothing out there that i could find so for everyone to be jumping on this bandwagon and say oh my god they've improved these times by this amount is it ruining the sport i believe there is definitely a mechanical engineering uh, effect but i'm trying to think about how much of an effect is that a placebo effect and there is always a component of a placebo and there's always a component of the actual true effect of the intervention as well so it's for me it's about take a step back and let's actually evaluate how much is the shoe improvement performance or how much is the hype actually causing these improvements in performance so that's where i'm sort of coming from with it awesome. and I, and I, yeah and i threw that tweet out there just to sort of stir the pot a little bit and <laughs> quite a few people had bitten which is quite funny but um it's also quite nice just to see um just to put another perspective out there as well
0: yeah yeah I think quite a few people, yeah, because Ian's, uh, Ian's chomping at the bit ready to go here. and do you out <laughs> to Ian? He's got loads of questions.
4: Hi, Phil. Um, yeah, in particular, I'm interested in uh, in the placebo effects and the, uh, the night vapor flies um, because it seems to have been absent from the discussions uh, around the vapor fly. Everyone's assuming um, that all of the effects are mechanical effects from the shoe and we've even quite respected scientists thought scientists having long debates about the shoe but with no mention of the placebo effects i find that interesting in itself and that um there seems to be some element of bias there what are your thoughts on on why that's absent
3: i'm not quite sure it depends who's driving the the narrative i suppose and it comes from a very biomechanical physiological perspective and i'm not quite sure whether they've kind of considered the psychological element or at least considered the significant impact that could have. So I think the origin comes from the sub two, the break in two projects. And even that in itself is a huge placebo, you know, the the amount of marketing, the amount of hype that went into that. And for them to bring out a shoe and say, this is having such a huge an effect on performance it's gonna help break two hours. That's adding to that narrative. And I am quite surprised that there hasn't been as much controlled evidence, or at least there hasn't been anything to say there is a psychological component. Yeah, like yourself, I don't know why it's
4: absent from from what's been talked about. I've seen in a a couple of studies, there's been some, I would say, an attempt at having a placebo control in there um, where they might mask the shoe in terms of painting it. Um, but anyone who knows the Vervify who's worn a pair of these <laughs> shoes or the original 4% knows that you can't fool someone just by painting the shoe. But- exactly.
3: And that, that that's the nature of this beast, to be honest, because it's going to be so difficult to actually placebo control a shoe like that because, like you said, as soon as you put it on, you know that you've, you've got something or something that's going to be going to change you have to be very creative in how we actually be able to manipulate somebody's expectations or their beliefs that they've got a shoe to be able to understand that component so probably right now it's impossible to do so because everyone knows this is what the shoes look like this is what they feel like how you can placebo that is another tricky argument or tricky control condition to have
4: There are some other Nike shoes that don't have the carbon plate, aren't they, that still have the the same uh, midsole material. So do you think there's a potential way you could potentially use those shoes or something that feels the same, but without some of the technology in there?
3: Yeah, I think there's two ways you could do it. You could have what we could classify as a sham. So you get the exact same shoe, but without the you know mechanical component within that, whatever's causing those effects. You could also look at manipulating expectations so you could give people the actual vapor fly give them two conditions one condition it's going to improve their performance and another condition it's going to have no effect on their performance actually saying that to them and then actually saying what's happening and then you can see the difference between those who think you have got a high expectation think you have got the shoe compared to those who don't have it so you could do it through that way or through that sham control
4: Yeah, so the the latter one's quite interesting in that we often uh, hear about responders and non-responders with paper flyers and with many interventions. Um, I guess you could play with something in terms of maybe a pre-test where you're pretending to be looking at whether they're a responder or a non-responder and then saying, well, what based on this initial test, it looks as though you're a non-responder or a responder and then use that, I guess.
3: Yeah, I mean... uh the non responder responder baits for, for everything, and that's yeah. even for the placebo effect. You can have placebo responders and non responders with that. So it's about trying to pinpoint or at least trying to understand what's causing these effects and then manipulating those effects.
4: And in terms of those placebo responders and non responders, there's a lot of that around well, we've discussed or you mentioned earlier hype, but is it a, it's obviously based around their belief system of the effect I'd imagine Um, and what we've seen with this shoe is a lot of media hype, a lot of people, actually the people that are probably most against the shoe are probably generating the most hype about it which potentially could be enhancing the placebo effect we think. Oh absolutely, so
3: as soon as Kipchoge goes across that line and I think at the start, however, two hours and 39 seconds or whatever it may be, you know, that's like, oh, my God, look at this breakthrough that we've had. And then all of a sudden, it's hype on that shoe. There's, It's fueling that belief. That's the same when you broke two hours. And it's it's causing that every time an athlete breaks a world record or breaks a British record, some sort of record, they're saying, I'm wearing these shoes. And then it's it's fueling that belief. So that, that caused it. And I think we mentioned it on Twitter um, about the banned performance answering drugs as well so once a what we found with our systematic review the largest placebo effects came from the drugs that are banned in sport so there's a as soon as something gets put on the banned list there's a perception or there's a belief or oh, that must do something that's going to have an effect and then that fuels that belief to go whoever takes it is going to think it's banned for a reason it's going to have an effect so it's the same with the shoes um the more media hype, the more athletes say it helps, the more likely we are gonna see a placebo effect.
4: That's correct. Um I, I realize that I'm uh, dominating procedures a little bit, so I'll <laughs> pass on to Mike now, sir, so, because I know he's got some questions and uh he's had a look at the review, so he might have something on that. Mike?
2: Thanks, Ian. Hi Phil. Hello Nev. Um as an athlete, the, the, the whole study was fantastic to read. Um, and on the topics that we've chatted about. But as a physio, my professional head jumped across to the wider reaching aspects of the power of placebo. Now, in healthcare academia and research, we are very quick to demonize placebo. It, it's the bane of everything you try and do. Um, and you t- you mentioned that um, one of your comments is that you recommend that support staff, including physios and doctors, don't explicitly use it for the power of placebo but when we have treatments and modalities that we know are effective we should maximize that placebo. What I'm really interested in is what your take would be is how we maximize that placebo. Yeah
3: I, I, there's, there's two strands of that isn't there so it's sort of it's been looked at as sort of a nuisance the placebo effects but that's more from a clinical trial perspective. If we want to try and find out if something works it has to go through that rigorous protocol of saying it's no better than the placebo. It has to be better than the placebo. But once, as you mentioned, something becomes effective or efficacious in, in a randomized controlled trial, then it's about maximizing its benefit. And that, that is where that real practitioner and the patient, the athlete relationship becomes so important in, in terms of how we communicate with our athletes and communicate with the people we're working with to make sure that whatever you're giving them, or whatever you're trying to in, intervene with them, they're fully believing in that, they, and they absolutely know that it's going to help their performance. Once that little bit of uncertainty or that bit of doubt comes in, they go, oh, I'm not quite sure if I'm getting the best out of this, then you're you're not maximizing the, the effects. And, yes, yeah, how, how we actually do that uh, is still unknown because there's so many little things that can... Uh, well, we're all individuals and we all respond to certain certain types of things. So um, there's been, there was a lovely study done at Harvard and, um, with Ted Kaptur's group where he's looked at GPs and how they give out medicines. And they say if they look into your eye and they, um, they spend a lot of time talking to you, they touch you on the shoulder, they, they offer care and empathy, um, that can increase the placebo effect. But on the flip side, there's 20% of other people who actually – do not respond to that, do not wanna be looked at the eye, do not wanna to be um, touched on the shoulder what it may be. So there, there is a. you have to understand the person you're working with and being able to respond in that way. So as a physio, I, I must've went around about 20 physios as an athlete, especially when I came to Canterbury, I went to all five clinics here. And the one I went to was the one, because of the, the guy that I got on with, Andy Buckley, we, we got on like a house on fire and I really responded to his type of treatment not necessarily whether it was the best, but it was the best for me. And that's why I went with him. So it's very difficult to give it, give, give the same advice to everybody in terms of being, enhancing the placebo effect. But we can definitely tap into certain things that we know might help. And it comes down to that individual level of what's best for that person. Yeah, fantastic.
2: That was the one question I had. I think overall, <laughs> I just wanted to say it's a fantastic study. I really uh, he interviewed oh, the for it last night, and I was burning the midnight oil reading it. It was fantastic.
3: <laughs> thank you.
0: Coming back to me. The <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> good timing. I, yeah. I'm just I'm, I'm just kind of listening. Just I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole thing, and I think I remember like years ago when I when I studied sports science. I remember the days when you know, physiology and biochemistry was in one building and psychology was with the uh, sociologists in another building. And the two were just such separate things. And it's just fascinating how over the last 10 years, this whole psychobiology thing is kind of bringing it together, isn't it? You know, and I just, uh, uh, I, I think it was Alex Hutchinson's book. It, he, there was a, a fascinating page of written in there about placebos and saying that, if they were looking at supplements or various things or training techniques and how this research had been done to show that that supplement would give like a two to four percent improvement and this supplement would give you a two to four percent improvement so they looked at what if we take all the supplements if we take 10 different ones that should add up to 20 to 40 percent improvement and it added up to a two to four percent improvement
3: <laughs> you know yeah, <laughs> there's definitely a ceiling effect, and whether that's biological, physiological, or that's a placebo, psych- psychological, it, uh, yeah, yeah, it's tapping into that. It's tapping into that. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, with, I'm just curious, what the, with the
0: placebo effect with the shoe. So I'm gonna I'm gonna have to, to to admit and put my hands up and say my name is Mark and I do <laughs> <a> very- <laughs> 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 uh, more out. of shore, you see. To be honest, I'm probably the slowest runner to own a pair of VaporFlies. And (laughs) um, what I found myself, subjectively, if I do, I was doing one kilometre reps on the road, and I found that I was probably five seconds quicker over those one kilometre reps in the VaporFlies compared to my normal shoes. Okay, that's what I found subjectively. So your first thoughts is, well, that's the mechanical thing. It's the carbon plate giving you spring. Or what we're discussing now, is it just a placebo effect? Do I just think those shoes are faster? Is there perhaps a middle ground where, because of the mechanical effect, they are a bit faster, and because you know they're faster, you then get the psychological effect, which makes them even faster? So the two things are combining?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a combination massively, and it's a, it, it goes with any intervention, any treatment, including night, night vapour flies in there that there's going to be a site psych- there's going to be a, a mechanical component which improves performance and then there's also a psychological component which comes first you could argue so i'd imagine when you put the shoes on and, oh these did, did they feel good i've never tried them i'm not quite sure they're <laughs> the ones that i've seen are bright green or you see the ones that, that kept chogi wall you know the blue or the red stripe type thing you know they look like they do business and the only way I can relate back to it is when I'm about eleven years old and I get a pair, a new pair of trainers and you put those new pair of trainers on and you go right down the street and you start sprinting because you feel like you're flying. It's a little bit like that in terms of how you feel. So as soon as you put them on, you might start feeling oh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna feel I feel good. You get that real boost in mood, emotion, whatever it may be. You also get the mechanical factor, mm-hmm. which then sort of um adds to what you already believe. It, it sort of confirms that, yes, this is working, which then increases your belief some more to think, right, these are doing some good. And then all of a sudden you've finished your rep, you look at your watch and go, wow, that was that definitely works. And then again, that confirms what you've already believed and what you've just expected. So by the time you next run on, uh, you do your next rep, it just fuels that again. So it's, yeah, it's cyclical. They, they're working in combination, in tandem, and um, I don't think you can ever separate them. But it's a fact of trying to understand how much of an effect the mechanical side has compared to the placebo side.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're if you're wearing something which you know is faster, or will definitely make you faster, physiologically, biomechanically, whatever it is, then that psychology thing is just going to be even stronger, isn't it? Yeah, maybe, absolutely. I'm also interested with the with the marathon times. Whilst we've got the, you know, the impact of the Vaporfly, and maybe people now believe that the Vaporfly can push. Were sub two hour were when they weren't wearing vapor flies they couldn't run sub two hours but i also look back to when paula ratcliffe ran the world record at london all those years ago and i can remember I And mean, you might you might be too young to remember this to be honest but i can remember back then how suddenly all the women started running under 220 when it'd been mm. such a big challenge and how they all yeah. started 220 and then when she when when that stopped they all did back and they were winning it in 223 224 so is that a benchmark thing or is it a placebo thing that they knew that it's now physic- we're all capable of doing it?
3: Yeah, I've got about two minutes left. But um, that, just what you said there is really fascinating because we wrote in a book chapter a few 2015 of the sub four minute mile. And it's 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 so reflective on that as well. It, it's quite mirrored by that. You know, um, Langley's trying to break the four minutes for a good two to three years, was never able to do it. Roger Bannister comes out in 1954, breaks four minutes, and then about a month later, Langley goes and breaks it as well. And um, I don't know the exact figures. I think the figures have been, uh, flow, been blown out now, but uh, loads of people ended up breaking the four minute mile, didn't you? And obviously, like high school athletes now do it quite regularly. So it's, it's crazy to think what we thought was impossible now is and we can do. That's probably the same with women's marathon, sub 220. Paul Radcliffe shows it's possible to do. Other athletes follow. It's got to be the same with the marathon as well. Kipchoge will do sub two hours, I'm sure, in in appropriate conditions, and then that'll follow with other athletes pushing that boundary.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you're short of time, Phil, so we'll let you go. But if you do try the vapor flies.
3: Get
0: I'm gonna have to, I think. Yeah, the pink, pink ones. I found the pink definitely <laughs> the fastest.
3: All right, yeah, the brightest as well. Yeah, is that what it. Is? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us, Phil. It's Thanks, guys. Thanks, Cheers. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow myself uh, via the Endurance Store at Endurance Coach. You can follow Mike, the endurance physio, at The Endurance PT. And you can follow Dr. Ian Bordley at MD Sport X. That's M-D-S-P-O-R-T-E-X. Uh, you can also visit our website. You can visit the TheEnduranceStore.com, which is a local running shop near Wigan. And uh, we also offer The Endurance Coach testing and coaching services. And also just check out SportsInjuryFix.com, where you can find a sports injury specialist near you. Speak to you soon.